In this episode, Agnes answers your questions about farming foibles, marketing mishaps, or personal predicaments. Email agnesanswers at gmail.com to receive audio advice from agriculture's agony aunt. Now, here's Agnes. Yes, here's Agnes. I am Agnes, the audio advice giver for agriculturalists. Uh, this is the Agnes Answers podcast. And the way this is going to work, folks, is in each episode, we're going to have two questions. So two advice seekers are going to come and ask, Dear Agnes, will you help me with this? And each episode is going to have one of those questions is going to be something maybe financially or businessy or markety or kind of a seriousy topic in that matter. And one other question is going to be more of a personal question or interpersonal problems, equally serious problems in their own way. So the first question that we address in this first episode of Agnes Answers is going to be one of those serious interpersonal questions. Let's jump right into it. Dear Agnes, my husband and I got married in March and my best friend from childhood traveled halfway across the country to be at our wedding. Her wedding is at the end of this month, and it would mean the world to me to go. However, I work for my husband in a seasonal industry, and it's our busiest time of the year. I have been clear since my friend sent out her save the dates that it was important to me to attend, and originally my husband was supportive and even talked about going with me. Now he feels like he can't go and doesn't want me to go either. In his defense, I have a hard time keeping up with all my duties and his credit just took a hit because I was late on a payment. However, in my defense, I am often in the field for 9 or 10 hours a day and trying to manage billing, scheduling, and housework, evenings and weekends. I'm curious for your thoughts. Is it reasonable to insist on attending this wedding in spite of the mistakes I've made? Or should I just accept this as my consequences for missing the payment? Signed, Wedding Travel Blues. Okay, there is a lot to unpack here. I think on the one hand, you've got sort of this reasonable scheduling question, reasonable from both sides, is whether or not this person should leave the family business during a busy time of year. And on the other hand, you've got this weird kind of toxic uh relationship almost forming between a wife and her husband. So we're going to unpack both of those things. But first, I feel it's important that I should make sort of a confession here. So this is the first episode of the Agnes Answers podcast. And obviously, I didn't have any initial questions coming in to me in the first place. So what I've done here is I've poached a question from another advice columnist. If you guys have ever read the Dear Prudence column on Slate.com, that's definitely 100% my favorite advice columnist that's out there working today. You know, there's been a lot of good ones out there in the past. There's Ann Landers and Ask Amy and, well, Dear Prudence is definitely the best. But this came up in a live discussion on Slate.com this July, so July 2018. And the moment that I read this question, I knew, hey, that lady is a farmer. And it really brought home to me why we need an agriculture-specific advice podcast. So Wedding Travel Blues here writes, I work for my husband in a seasonal industry, and it's our busy time of year. Okay, to the general population, that could mean any number of things. And this answer about going to the wedding is just obviously, of course you should go to the wedding. Forget about your crabby husband. Go to the wedding. But 
you know, in the agriculture industry, there are so many of these family farms where the answer is not that easy. These two may be the only people on earth who are capable of getting in the product for that entire business's fiscal year in a very short and specific amount of time. It is probably not trivial that Wedding Travel Blues is asking this question of whether or not she should go. This is something that is different about the agriculture industry that is not the same way in most other industries and why I think Wedding Travel Blues' question belongs here in the Agnes Answers podcast, perhaps more appropriately than in the Dear Prudence column. So my answer is probably going to still be pretty much the same as Dear Prudence's answer, which is basically, yeah, of course you should go. Because yes, of course she should go. There is a precedent that she needs to set. They, they've only been married since March, and her friend's wedding has been on the books this whole time. Yes, her husband may be the one in charge of the farm's schedule, but she probably needs to put her foot down now and say that she's in charge of her own personal life schedule. That has to be a precedent that you set now, otherwise it's going to be a long and probably unpleasant marriage. It is her life, right? If it's not her life, whose is it? So yes, she should go. But I will say that I understand the angst here. And I think the compromise or the way to couch this conversation, this upcoming conversation with her husband might be, would be to acknowledge that things like this should not go on the schedule in future years. So if this is perhaps wheat harvest in Nebraska, which would be this July timeframe that she's talking about, you might say, no, I won't be able to go to any future friends' weddings in any future Julys. And that is going to be a pretty big sacrifice. You never know what sacrifice, what might come up in any future July. I know lots of farmers who have skipped their grandchildren's graduations for planting season, right? Or weddings get skipped for things. And that's not fun. It's not pleasant. And perhaps it's a little bit unreasonable. Some of these people get a little bit too workaholic and too bound up when they could probably skip one day in their harvest or their planting or whatever the case may be. But I think it is a sacrifice that a lot of farm families make. And it's something that Wedding Travel Blues is probably going to have to come to grips with. And that's just going to be the way it's going to be in future years. Also, every farm should have some kind of a backup plan so that sick days can be a real thing or travel to your childhood friend's wedding days or funeral days or whatever. So this is a wake-up call for Wedding Travel Blues and her husband that the two of them need to sort this out and build in a plan and build in some redundancy for their labor supply. You know, the proverbial question is, what if somebody gets hit by a bus? There's got to be some kind of a backup. But for now, of course she should go. Of course she should go to her friend's wedding. Okay, so I wasn't totally sure that the Dear Prudence column would get it, would get the implications of this situation for an agriculture scenario. But my advice is pretty much exactly what Prudence said to. And since I ripped this off from Slate.com, I'll just go ahead and read the advice that Dear Prudence gave to. She said, 
I'm a little concerned that both you and your husband seem to be framing this as something you are either going to be, quote, allowed to do, or something you will be forbidden from doing as punishment for making mistakes at work. It would be one thing if you two were making the decision together, even if you had to make a tough call in order to prioritize your business. But I think you should both steer clear of the consequences angle and figure out if there's a reasonable way you two can work around an absence of two or three days while you travel to your best friend's wedding. You can figure out how to keep the trip as short as possible, get as much work done in advance as possible, and let the housework wait for a few days, or let your husband handle it in your absence. If there's a bigger picture conversation to be had about your workload and whether your present situation is sustainable, that should be had separately from the question of attending this particular wedding. Missing two days of work to fly to a wedding is unlikely to be the sole deciding factor in whether your business is successful, and I think you should do your best to make your attendance possible. Agnes Answers is a member of the Global Ag Network. Go visit globalagnetwork.com to see their full roster of lots of great podcasts and content. Obviously, you like podcasts and you like agriculture, so you will be sure to find new podcasts to listen to on the Global Ag Network. For instance, like Ag News Daily, which is just a perfect little dose of what's going on in the ag world delivered every day of the week. So go check out Global Ag Network. Okay, on to the next Agnes Answers question. Dear Agnes, is it necessary for farmers to use futures and options when they're hedging grain? Or, uh, I guess what I'm asking is, is that better? Do, do the folks who use futures and options do a better job and get a higher price than people who don't want to open up a brokerage account? Signed, sick of the sales pitches. Okay, first of all, we need to acknowledge the very fine voice acting work done there by none other than Mike Pearson, who you may know as uh, the voice of the Ag News Daily podcast, along with Delaney Howell, who voiced the first question of this episode from Wedding Travel Blues. Now, the two of them, of course, are virtuoso podcast hosters, but Mike here with that vocal interpretation, I think, proves that he should seek out more of this voice acting work. He's, he missed his calling as a thespian. I really appreciate that. Um, I've mentioned the Ag News Daily podcast before. It is the mother of all the podcasts in the Global Ag Network family of podcasts. So thank you to Mike Pearson and Delaney Howell. Thank you for voicing these questions. Uh, and do go check out the uh, Ag News Daily podcast. Okay, but to address this question from Sick of Sales Pitches, he's asking... And it's a real question. It's not just something that Mike read. It was a real question that was that was sent in to me as an email, and, Vi and Mike just gave voice to it. But the question, of course, was, is it necessary to use futures and options to be a good grain marketer? And then sort of a secondary question to that, and part of the same question, but he's asking, 
do the people who use futures and options do a better job of marketing their grain? So I suppose you could say if if we had evidence that they do do a better job, then yes, perhaps folks should be using futures and options. Um, so how do we sort this out? How do we answer these questions? Well, what I did is I asked an expert. I called in Dr. Andrew McKenzie, and he's on the faculty at the University of Arkansas's Department of Agricultural Economics and Agribusiness. So Dr. McKenzie specializes in price risk management, futures and options markets, and grain marketing. So basically, he is the perfect expert to help out Agnes for this question about is it necessary to use futures and options to market your grain? I mean, it's actually been a sort of a question as to whether you can use futures and options to enhance income for farmers for quite a while. And, you know, when I first came to Arkansas, I guess it was around 98. I remember there was a couple of papers, I think, by Scott Irwin up at Illinois. And um, it was, I think it was uh, Wisner and Blue at Ohio State. And that was the sort of theme at that time when I first arrived. Is it possible to do that or not? And Owen was in the camp where markets are efficient and you can't really enhance income through futures and options. And the Wisner camp was, well, there may be some sort of a weather or yield risk premium during the summer months. So if you use futures to sort of lock in prices ahead of harvest in a pre-harvest window, you could actually enhance incomes. And, and so actually, this is, um, I think for most academic economists over the last 10, 15 years, they've sort of uh, tended to be more in Irwin's camp, that markets are efficient and you can't really use futures to enhance income. Uh, I mean, he's not saying you can't use them for risk management purposes. And I sort of tend to go a little bit more leaning towards that side of things as well. So I do believe, you know, it's good if you see that you've got a good price at a certain time in the crop year, you can certainly use a futures or an options contract to lock that price in. But I'm not sure that if you consistently try to, uh, you know, use the futures contracts just in order to try to get additional income above, say, the harvest cash price, whether that is actually feasible or not, I would tend to say probably not. Now, when Dr. McKenzie mentioned when he first came to Arkansas, that's because you may have noticed he does not have an Arkansas accent. And uh, that's kind of funny um, because I specifically kind of called somebody from Arkansas because I thought it would be nice to get more of a southern accent to balance out my my northern vowels, don't you know? And what I ended up getting was somebody with an English accent. And as everybody knows, if you want somebody who sounds smart, an expert who sounds like they knows know what's going on, get somebody with an English accent. So I really lucked out um, with Dr. McKenzie, whom I have corresponded with over email before. I just had never spoken to and I didn't know that I was going to get this beautiful English accent. Very much appreciated. Okay. Great for a podcast. But let's get back to the topic. Let's clarify that locking in a price during uh, the weather risk premium season when there's just good prices, you can do that by using just forward contracts at the local elevator. And you can do that without ever opening up a futures brokerage account. Oh, that's exactly right. Um, And, you know, I actually advocate that to a certain extent because it's certainly a lot simpler from the farmer's point of view to do that. And you don't have to deal with margin accounts and everything else. Now, there is a downside, of course. Once you lock in the bushels at a physical location, at one physical local elevator, 
or ethanol plant or whatever location a specific company has written that contract to you, then that means you no longer have the opportunity to negotiate better basis opportunities down the road when you're actually moving the grain. So there are opportunity costs uh, to, to doing it this way rather than using your own independent futures brokerage account. However, that's that's a, a, a subtlety that is perhaps not presented to many of the people that are out there encouraging people to, to use futures and options and then really trying to give them the hard sell. And I suspect that's part of the reason why sick of the sales pitches uh, wrote in with this question in the first place is that there seems to be a lot of pressure placed on farmers that, oh, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. Um, and a lot of that pressure is coming from people who have commissions to earn. They have a reason to be selling you on that idea. So I think it's really important to be getting this information from Dr. McKenzie because Dr. McKenzie um, is a tenured professor. He's getting his salary. He's not a futures broker. He's not trying to drum up any of his own business. Um, so he is a very valuable uh, uh, expert that we have on this topic. And in fact, what you're saying is, can I, in a way, speculate really in futures to get a higher price? Um uh, and I, I don't think that really is consistently possible at all. Uh, um, however, like we said, if you do see what looks like a good price, then the question is, how do you gauge what a good price is? And I, uh, most of the people that I know who are involved in the business would advocate trying to use some sort of what I would call profit margin hedging, or at least knowing what your cost of production is. And then if you see a price which is giving you break even or above, then maybe you want to lock in at least a percentage of your future crop uh, in the in the forward market or futures market in that case. Now, Dr. McKenzie also emphasized to me that farmers who do want to still participate in the market after harvest, um, you know, to be participating in the price movements of the markets, they can do that still through their local elevator without opening an individual brokerage account. They could use the contracts offered by the elevator, uh, minimum price contracts or premium offer contracts that effectively are using futures and options strategies that are then just transacted through the elevator's futures and options brokerage account. So all of these things, even, even the opportunities to speculate, all of these things can be done, again, without opening up an individual futures and options brokerage account. So you can do it, but should you do it? And I think that gets to the second part of Sick of the Sales Pitches question. Uh, he was asking, do the farmers who use futures and options do a better job? But I just don't think that I've ever seen any actual data. I don't believe that anybody can really come in here with proof one way or the other because farmers are notoriously unwilling to answer survey questions or really release information about how they run their individual businesses, which is, of course, their prerogative, but it makes it awfully difficult to prove it one way or the other, whether the folks who are using futures and options do a better job of actually marketing their grain. And Dr. McKenzie has approached this as, as well as anybody, trying to get actual data, actual studyable, quantifiable data on this topic. Yeah, I did actually have just recently this fall have a master's thesis student do this sort of topic um, in that we were looking at various types of contracts, which included forward contracts, just selling at the harvest time, cash market spot. Uh, um, and then even some like, you know, average pricing contracts, which have become somewhat fashionable. 
and then futures contracts. We were looking at the pre-harvest window, and we had like, a, I guess we did it from 2000, 2001 through the present year. Um, so we had like, you know, about 17, 18 years worth of data. And this is annual data. And we just looked at, well, what if the first time in the crop year before harvest, you notice that, okay, this is a time where prices are at a level where I would cover my production costs or say 125% or 150%. So that was a sort of a decision rule that we based the strategy on. And the first time that was achievable, we said, okay, let's see if you locked in the price, either with a forward or a futures, how would that have then compared versus just selling at the harvest crop price? We looked at that over that 18-year window. And it's sort of interesting. We did see that you could maybe, uh, in the June-July period, on average, maybe get like 20 to 30 cents per bushel higher than the spot price at the harvest time. And similarly, in terms of profit per bushel or profit per acre, you could also get $30, $50 per acre maybe higher than you would have done on the spot market. However, those are just numerical numbers. And there's a lot of variation in the data, and it's still a fairly small sample with just 17, 18 years, 17, 18 observations. So statistically, we found if you use traditional sort of t-tests that that really wasn't actually significantly different from zero still. Oh. So, <laughs> so you know, it depends who you ask as to whether that's actually a good strategy and whether that's evidence or not. Um, because, you know, there's very few observations. So you really need a lot more observations to actually be able to statistically say for sure whether you could enhance income or not. I'm, I'm still pretty wary of it because, like I say, with that small sample size, and statistically, it's really not different from zero. I'm not a big advocate of trying to uh, sort of like at least go out yourself and say, I'm going to speculate and try to get a high price as possible. I think you'd have to use some sort of decision rule like what I just mentioned there. So in summary, I think what we've learned here is that studies, actual quantifiable data, do show there is seasonality in the grain markets. So there may be times when folks do want to take advantage of prices. Certainly, they want to look at the importance of locking in profits, covering their costs, and locking in profits using proactive strategies. But no, those strategies don't have to be futures and options. No, it really doesn't have to be that at all. And I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for simplicity. <laughs> what my friend, one of my friends who works at White Commercial, he always likes to quote Ronald Reagan, who says, you know, having simple things is not a bad thing. Simplicity is a good thing. Yeah. And I think certainly from a marketing standpoint, having a consistent message and following a consistently simple strategy is the best way to go if possible. I feel good that we've got an answer here for sick of the sales pitches. That uh, is it necessary to use futures and options? No. Do the folks who use futures and options do a better job? Well, we don't have any evidence one way or the other. So just thank you again to Dr. Andrew McKenzie from the University of Arkansas. The Agnes Answers podcast is produced by me, Agnes. Thank you to Brandon McDermott for voicing the intro. Music for this podcast is by yours truly, Agnes. Sound editing by me, Agnes. Production assistant, me, Agnes. Craft services, me, Agnes. Key grip, me, Agnes. Special effects, me, Agnes. Weapons master, me, Agnes. Wardrobe by, uh, looks like Carhartt today. Uh, Production design and set decoration by Floyd, the Black Angus Bull. Stunts by Harriet the Barn Cat. Payroll accountant, 
Uh, it doesn't matter who does that because there's no payroll yet. But boy, I'd love it if there was. So please go to agonisanswers.com if you feel you can support the mission of this show by donating and any little bit helps. Thanks. And here's a last piece of Agnes advice. Take good care of yourself. Until next time.